Welcome to the Wardrobe Muse, helping you dress from the inside out. Feeling wardrobe challenged? Discover your style with me. I love working with women to identify their authentic self through clothing, to craft and maintain simple wardrobes that reflect who they truly are and that work for their lifestyles. To work together, visit me on the web at lastwardrobe.com. Visit lasswardrobe.com. Here's your host, Lisa. Hello, everyone, and welcome today to The Wardrobe Muse. It's Lisa Ann Santon, and I am here today with Dr. Esther Gotho, and I'm going to read a little bit of her bio. Esther has been a Beverly resident for 21 years, and in her time uh, here in Beverly, she has been deeply involved in the local community. But she has an amazing story. She is originally born in rural Kenya, Africa. She came here with her daughter to America in November of 2001, uh, later to be joined by her husband. And she has this amazing immigration story that has shaped her beliefs about everything in life. Um, she's devoted her life to being uh, in community service, and she will never leave anyone behind. Now, her life work is very interesting. It's been in both healthcare policy and practices and um, creating a lot of community around healthy people. She is a nurse, an RN, with a master's degree in emergency and disaster management and a PhD in public health. And um, she is also a military mom. Her daughter is an army captain married to a police officer. She's going to tell us more about all of this. Um, and she is a volunteer board advisor for Beverly Bootstraps. And she does many other things. I know her as Esther because we were on a board together for the Zen Center North Shore. And I want to tell you that she facilitated a retreat for our board once. And the wisdom and authenticity and divine feminine energy that she brought to that room and that space among both men and women was something I've never forgotten. I've always looked for an excuse to have her on my podcast. And because she is running uh, in our current system of election for mayor of Beverly, I have an opportunity today to be with her here in the podcast studio and ask her about leadership from a female perspective, but I'm going to let her reintroduce herself and um, then we'll get into some chatting, some questions. Welcome, Esther. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, I'm so happy to be here today with you. Um, where do I start? So, like you said, I was born in Kenya by a woman who had 10 of us, and I'm right in the middle. Just 10, Esther. Yes, just 10. So this woman taught me how to love my siblings, how to share, how to nurture them. And um, I've learned a lot from her hard work. And I'm also the daughter of a freedom fighter. My father went into the forest to fight the British colonialists because he wanted to free his people. And so um, I think I have got that fighting spirit from my father. I, I know you 
uh, asked me about my hair, and I told you that I have rasta. We were talking about this before we, <laughs> we started rolling. Yes, I have rasta, uh, but it's not for fashion. Um, I keep it because when my father and other men went into the forest to fight the British colonialists, they didn't comb their hair. They needed to be warm. And so it grew like spikes in all directions. And when my father passed away, um, well, he he was not well for a couple of years. And I could see that he's going to pass away at some point. So the only way I thought that I could remember him is growing dreads on my head. My mother didn't like them because she is a Christian of a different kind. She didn't want the dreads. So my mother didn't know until recently that I have dreads on my head. But I keep them uh, for my father's sake. And um, I think about him when I have a situation that I need to fight about. So uh, basically... I grew up in Kenya. I never thought at any one time that I would end up in America. But uh, in June of 2001, um, my family uh, was involved in violence. Violence was meted against my family. Uh, by the operatives of the then president, because my father-in-law um, supported a different person. And so I took my daughter and ran here to save her life. Uh, she was nine when I uh, came into Beverly. And uh, so I, she grew up here in Beverly. She went to Ryoside Elementary School then uh, the, the memorial um, middle school, and she graduated from Beverly High School in 2009. Um, while I was in Kenya, I had obtained a dual degree in education and in business administration. So I taught business to college students for 10 years. Uh, what that does for me, what I feel the biggest uh, skill that I, I think I got from that scenario is how to take risks. Um, I know that in order for a person to grow and change, they have to take risks. But you just don't take risks blindly. You have to take as much risk out of risk taking and you only do the risk that is absolutely necessary. So that is a lesson that I bring to the table. Uh, when I came here, those skills were not transferable directly and I needed to find and figure out how we were going to live our lives here. So I decided to go into nursing. It's a long story. I had phobia for the needle and I had phobia for blood. But she pressed on <laughs> and I had courageously. And I had no chemistry. 
at all because I had studied arts and no chemistry. So believe it or not, I started by going to uh, to Peabody High School at the age of 30-something to study chemistry so I can understand what atoms are. And then from there, I continued to uh, Boston College where I did college chemistry to prepare for a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Um, I also went to Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge and I learned to be a phlebotomist. That's the person who draws blood Mm -hmm. because I needed to get used to the needle and the blood. So I was ready and I proceeded to Clayton University where I obtained the uh, Bachelor Bachelor of Science degree in nursing. And um, nursing is so wonderful because it has given me skills that are very rare. You can imagine a nurse meets a patient for the first time and you only have 30 seconds to establish trust and start taking that patient's clothes out. So you have to right, rap- yeah. right. You have to rapidly, you have to have a skill to rapidly be able to create connect. trust. Yeah, to connect. And so you can help the patient. And when I became um, a nurse for the first time, um, almost, uh, I would say 18 years ago, something like that, I was working in nursing homes with the senior, you know, senior people. And I remember that time, most of them had not seen, had not been involved with black people. So I, bec- I was the, um, the charge nurse, the evening supervisor, and so in the evening, if I had like um, a nurse's assistant of color, she would go to the room to assist an elderly white woman. And the white woman would say, I do not want to be touched by a black person. So the CNA, the nurse's assistant would come back to me and say, she has refused. And then I would go uh, and she would say, call the nurse. And then I would go there and say, how are you, Mrs. So-and-so? Um, I understand you asked for the nurse. Yes, I need to see the nurse. I am the nurse. You two are black? <laughs> That's what she would ask me. And she would refuse service from me, and I would tell her, Mrs. So-and-so, I am the best thing that ever happened to you. I love it. And I would give her the call light and say, if you still want me to help you, please call me. And they would because they want to go to the bathroom. So what I did when I went back to the nurse's desk, I would um, get a lotion and put it in my pocket because when you take the elderly to the bathroom, you don't leave them. You stay there with them. So as they do their business, I would take the lotion and rub their back. Now, And by the time they finish, they would start crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? I'm so sorry about what I told you. Say, it's okay. I told you I'm the best thing that happened to you. And we did become free. I love it. So From uh, freedom fighter's daughter in Kenya <laughs> to leaving your country mm-hmm. with your own daughter, yeah. a wee one of nine, re- having to re-educate yourself and then starting to work in an atmosphere where you're initially not seen or accepted 
continue. This is fabulous. Okay. So um, I did all that. And meanwhile, my child was going through school. And uh, when she graduated, um, we had a lot of scenes in the school because um, my daughter uh, was getting, you know, like some students were calling her, you know, the N-word and all that. And she would come home and I would see that she is retrogressing and I would tell her, what's the problem? She wouldn't want to tell me. She says, mom, I don't want to tell you because they know you are going to do something to me. I said, no, it's me and you. Tell me what happened. And she says, okay. Uh, a student called me this name and I, I, he's been doing this and I didn't know what to do. So I flung an exercise book across the room and I was blacklisted. So mom, I can never go to college. I say, what? I can't say I can't go to college because I was blacklisted. Okay, all right, I'm coming to school. Then I would go to school and demand that I see the principal and the assistants, and we'd sit and they would ask me, "What can we do for you?" I say, "You know what? We are not talking until you first remove my daughter from the blacklist, and then we can talk." So they did that, and then I told them the story. They were surprised that 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 had happened. And while my daughter went through school, she was told to apply to community college and stuff like that because she would never make it to university. And my daughter almost believed that and came and told me, Mom, I want to join the military. After graduating high school, I say, nope, you're not going to join the military. And she's like, why? Because you're going to die in war. You, you remember they were in Afghanistan. Of course, of course. So I said, you're going to die in war. I brought you here to save you. I cannot let anybody kill you here. So she's like, mom, you have to let me go to the military. If you don't, when I become 18, I'm going to go anyway. Then it hit me. So I said to her, sit down, let's talk. And I said to her, I'll let you go into the military if you promise that you're going to finish college and you're going to commission as an officer. I had done some little homework and she said, fine. And we used to uh, write and sign contracts. So we wrote a contract and we signed it. So after she graduated, she had applied to six, I think to about six universities. She had applied to Virginia Military Institute, uh, Notre Dame in, uh, I don't know whether it's Vermont or New Hampshire, here in Massachusetts, Citadel, you know, Annapolis, all those. And guess what? Uh, all of them accepted her. I love it. The person who was supposed to just go to community yeah, college. Yeah, but we did a lot of work. There's one teacher uh, at Beverly High School who joined my team. And when my daughter applied to all those schools, we decided we are going to take her to every college for a weekend to see, you know, to experience and then be able to choose. So I took her to Citadel. Her father took her to Virginia Military Institute. The teacher took her to, I, I don't know whether it's Vermont and the one here 
and um, she went to Annapolis by herself. Uh, and finally, she chose to go to Virginia Military Institute. So when she left, um, I felt lonely. I'm like, okay, what am I going to be doing here? And I told her, listen, Annie, her name is Anne Marie, I'm going to assist you. You go to college, and I am going to college, and we are going to encourage each other. I'll come and face it to you. You come and face it to me. And that is what we did. While she was in Virginia, I was in Nebraska, Creighton University. So you're taking that nursing degree, and you're now launching to the next. Yes. And what did you study? I studied um, Bachelor of Science um, in nursing. So after... After the time, you know, I had done a lot of uh, prerequisites while I was out here. So I went in for one year and then um, went to Yale University Hospital for internship. I stayed down there in in Connecticut for about five years. Um, And then I came back to Massachusetts and uh, did my RN. So I became an RN. Um... So I have a lot of skills that I have obtained from healthy policies and practices that I can use. Now, Esther, what I love about this is you've got the whole immigration story. Mm -hmm. So we want to capture that. As a woman fleeing a country with their daughter. So Mm -hmm. there's that mother instinct. Yeah. Then we have the multiple levels of credentialing. Mm Mm-hmm from your country of origin and then studying here in the U.S. So you've got the brain power. And then you've got the release of your daughter mm-hmm. to serve a country that yes. you were not yet a true citizen of. Yes. And this, I believe, uniquely qualifies you mm-hmm. to lead with what I call feminine energy or I call it the divine feminine. We love men, but yeah. this to me, is a unique way that you could approach leadership at a very local level. Talk to me a little bit about how you feel when I say that. Does it resonate with you? It does. It does. Because when um, we, we got into a problem in Kenya, and I figured that they are going to kill my daughter, I suggested to the father, let's go to America. Let's go anywhere. Let's move from here. And he's like, I am never going to move from here. And I took it on my hands to save my daughter single-heartedly. So I uh, went and looked for a visa and all that by myself because the father didn't want to go. He didn't want to leave Kenya. And I came to the U.S. with my daughter, the two of us only. He refused to go. And I left him there. And I came here... uh, the reason, the sole reason was to save my baby. He's not still your husband, by the way. Uh, you, no, we got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put that out there. <laughs> yeah, we got divorced. Um, but he's still there. <laughs> so um, we came here. Uh, I came here for the sole purpose of saving my baby. And when I get here, you look at this country, you do not even know where to start. But I believe there's an instinct that every woman has. Um, where I come from, we say that women have 
a sixth sense. I don't know whether they, you say that here? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I'm sitting, I was hosted by a student, oh, you know, by um, a young lady who had one bedroom. We slept in her sitting room at night. We, we pulled a couch that became a bed and then, you know, we returned it in the morning. And I'm looking, I'm saying, I don't think we can live like this. And I had carried all the uh, newspaper articles that had talked about the violence we had gone through. So I sit there and I think, how am I going to handle this? So I took the yellow pages and I looked for immigration attorneys and I would call each one of them and ask for um, an appointment. And I looked for the attorneys whose first appointment was free. So I took a lot of appointments on different days. And they would think they are going to interview me. I was going to interview them. My question was, after we talked and I gave them, I showed them the newspaper cuttings, they knew I had a case, an imi- a very strong immigration case. But my question to them was, they, they said to me that I, we needed 150 days to get the work authorization. So 150 days, those are f- six months. Mm. So my questions to them was, where am I going to be for six months? What am I going to do with my baby? And they said, we don't know. You could walk out of the table. I don't know. But there was one young attorney who said that I'm going to help you. And so she referred me to the refugee immigration ministry. And the refugee immigration ministry took us. They, they got us a foster family in Topsfield. So we stayed with this family for one month. And then meanwhile, they sorted themselves out and they decided to rent an apartment for us in Beverly. I didn't know what Beverly is or where Beverly is, but they chose Beverly. They said that it has something for everybody. So they put me near the train station and near the stop and shop because I didn't have a car. I could go there, you know. I could go to places. So that's how I ended up in Beverly. And when you become a leader in Beverly, mm-hmm. the leader, the mayor, okay, you have this unique perspective, both the feminine fleeing, the nurturing, keeping your daughter safe. You have the immigrant experience. You have the experience of being a person of color. These are unique qualifications. Yes. Yes, I have been an immigrant in the U.S. I have lived as a woman of color in Beverly. I have worked a low-wage job. I have heard the threat of homelessness hanging over my head. I have seen it all. So what I say is a person who has not worn your shoes cannot tell you how to tie your shoelaces. They don't know. And when I see a person saying they are going to deal with homelessness, with food insecurity, with low wages, how are they going to do that if they do not know what that is? Probably a time before now, um, a meal like we have, 
would have been a very good mayor, but things have changed. We are now facing different crises, different uh, disasters that require somebody with unique perspective, somebody who has experienced these things and knows what they are and knows what to do with them. Now, people ask me whether I'm prepared to be mayor in a city like this. If uh, those who know my immigration story, I don't think I need any other qualification. If I can come from out there and come here and stabilize my daughter and bring her a rap and she becomes a captain in the army, and I provide the security. I provide a home, which I have. I bought a home 18 months after I got here, and I'm still in that home. If I can do all that, then what other thing do you need? And your platform, which we can find on your website, mm-hmm. obviously has been informed by these lived experiences. Yes. yes. Tell us the other caveat. Your daughter marries. Tell us who she marries and that story. Because yes. that also uniquely qualifies you yes. for the times. My daughter goes to Virginia Military Institute. And when she's graduating after four years, I come down to Virginia. And she's, she had a boyfriend, uh, a white boyfriend at that time. They were in the same college. And she says to me, Mom, we will take you out to dinner today because we have something to tell you. In I panic. I'm like, what can they possibly tell me that they are going to get married? That they are expecting a baby? What? So we go to dinner and it is the boyfriend who talks. The boyfriend is a white guy. So he was uh, commissioned in the Marine. So he was a Marine officer. And he tells me, we wanted to tell you that Anne-Marie was in the military the whole time, the whole four years, but she didn't let you know because you said that she should not enlist until she graduates. But she had enlisted from the first year to the last year. So I panicked. I didn't, you know, I feared in arrears, you know. Uh, and yeah, reverse fear all yeah. the way back to yeah. what could have happened. Yes. So they're looking at me and they're laughing. And um, at the same time, they told me on that occasion that they intend to get married so that they are not separated. Because if they don't get married, uh, they'll be sent to different corners. Right, different stations. Um, I'm looking at my daughter with a white man. And I know how difficult it was for me with a Kenyan man from my country. And I start to pity my daughter. I'm like, hmm, what is going to happen here? And I felt I needed to do something. So I told them that because you've been very good, I'm going to take you on a trip to Kenya. (laughs) Together, the two of them? Two of them. Okay. So, and I said, uh, it's even better than that. I will take you to Sweden and Denmark for two weeks and then Kenya for one month. So they were so excited and we set out to go. So we went to Malmo in Sweden. 
that's where I have a friend there. So we stayed in her house. And so during the day, we would go to Denmark and they saw all that. And then finally, we ended up in Kenya. Now, were you trying to scare the young man away? No, what I wanted him to do. (laughs) Putting him on safari? I wanted him to see where we come from. Mm, The origins. And who we are. Mm, I wanted mm -hmm. him to understand our people. And so he can see what he feels, whether he likes it or he doesn't. I thought it is very hard for somebody to just marry somebody you saw and you don't even know where they came from. So I took them to Kenya for one month. They had an extraordinary experience. My daughter hadn't gone back since we came here. Mm. So they really enjoyed it. And... um. When we came back, they got engaged. And uh, he was very, very, very happy. And finally, uh, they decided to get married. So by the time they are getting married, he'd left the Marine and he'd become a, a police officer. Now, Esther calls this man her son. Yes. He, in her heart, is not a son-in-law, not a white guy that married her daughter. He has become Mm -hmm. her son. It's my son. And here's what I did on their wedding. I had brought a picture from Kenya, a framed uh, portrait of an African mother with her baby. So on the day of the wedding, I requested that the mother of... Um, of my daughter's husband-to-be come to get my daughter from what I was pretending to be my house. So she came, and there were Kenyan women there. We danced through everything. We danced through marriage. We danced through funerals. We danced through anything. So she came, and we were dancing, and when she got in, we did a little ceremony, and I said to her, I'm giving you this portrait to represent me giving you my daughter. I am giving my daughter to you, not to your son. What both of them do is their business, but I, as a mother, am giving my daughter to another mother. So she took, um, I remember she cried. It was emotional. She took the- That's powerful. That's very powerful. She took the portrait, and I know where she has kept it, where she- kept it, it is the first thing she sees when she wakes up and the last thing she sees when she sleeps. And that family, let me tell you, it's a family that was sent from heaven. Uh, That is the way we get married. In Kenya, when a woman gets married to a man, you get married to their family. Right. In fact, on the wedding day, you're given a bed and beddings to signify that your bed has now moved. Do not come back. Mm. That's how they do it. So um, I still felt like a Kenyan, and I felt that my daughter is now joining another family, and I had to let her go to the other family to be part of that family, and I did that. And that family has never disappointed me right now my daughter has surgery on her back her her mother-in-law 
is the one who's taking care of her children. And the other family, they're all there. So they're taking good care of her. And I'm very, very, very grateful. And you're in that process entrusting your daughter to a non-Kenyan, non-African, yes. non-traditional family model. But tell us what they do for a living in, in this other family, because this is very significant to how I believe you are also qualified for this moment. What does your son do for a living, Esther? Okay, so my son is a police officer. His father is a chief of police. His mother worked for the military. His uncle was a police officer. His brother is a fireman. His uh, grandfather was a police officer. So it's like one family in service gets married to another family in service. And I do believe in the thing that birds of the same feathers flock together. So I think this is what happened. You know, you attract. Like attracts like. So yeah. you have two families that are service oriented and mm -hmm. community oriented being attracted. Mm -hmm. But you have a unique perspective with regard to the challenges of being a police officer in modern day U.S. history. Mm -hmm. You also now have race relations that yes. play out in your life every day. Another opportunity for you to uniquely speak mm -hmm. to what's happening in real time. Okay, so race is an epidemic. It kills and everybody knows how it kills. And especially as it relates to police officers. So May 25th, uh, last year, is it last year or 2019? Last year? 2020. Yeah. Delic Chauvin, a white police officer, killed George Floyd, a black man, while three officers looked on. And that was the time that this phrase, defund the police, was born. And defund the police, words have no meaning. We put meaning in words when we use them. Mm -hmm. So when I use the word defund the police, it means different from when somebody else uses it. There are some people who use it to mean more body cameras and no shock hoods. There are other people who use it to mean a revolution. We don't want no police here. So people, there are others who use it politically. They create a box here. They want to put you in there or a box here. You are either in this box here or this box here, but not anywhere in between. But for me, police is family. So there's nobody, black or white, who can tell me that we have, we cannot talk to the police. They are my family. Why can when I go home, I talk to a police officer. Okay. So I personally say that I do not hate the police. I dislike the bad things that they do, of course. And I think that we need to create a balance because I have a black um, woman, a black daughter who is married to a white 
police officer and I have two black grandchildren. You know, when you have a drop of black blood, you're black. So my two grandchildren are black. And so I think we have to uh, create a balance here between we have to reform the, the police, that's for sure. We have to reform the police. And Esther, because of your family situation and the significance of this, you would be uniquely qualified to sit at a table and open up the dialogue. Yes. Um, in a way that maybe other people don't have agency. You have that as a person who has members of your family serving in the military, serving now as police. You can come to a table with an open mind and an let, open heart. Let me tell you what happened this week, actually. I called uh, a certain city official and I said, I need to come to your office because I want something from your office. He said, come on, I'm going to be here the whole day. And I went there and we started to talk. I started to ask questions and he needed another city official to come in to answer the questions, I was with uh, my campaign manager. But this officer had a blue line flag on his desk. So when we finished talking, I felt obliged to ask him why he has that flag there. And I said to him when we'd finish, I have a personal question I'd like to ask you. Do you mind? He said, no. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. Please, can you tell me why you have this flag here? And he told me that he has that flag there because his son is a police officer and he showed me the photograph. And I was able to come in and say, my son is also white and is a police officer. So there we are in the same category. But this year, when we see it, it traumatizes us because there are some police officers who misused it to show that they sympathize with white supremacists. And he really apologized. He said, I'm so sorry. But you see now, the, the most important thing about that uh, meeting is that we were able to talk as equals. He has a white son who is a police officer. I have a white son who is a police officer. You know, my feelings had been validated by who I was. And we were able to sit and talk about it. And again, I will say my observation, one woman's observation, mm -hmm. you are, because you are feminine, because you are a mother, you were attuned to seeing that in the room mm -hmm. and asking permission to use it as a way to open up a dialogue yes. that I believe is unique. I'm not <laughs> sure that an, a man going into that office would have scanned the office, noticed it, had that feeling. So that's another example of how I think feminine leadership is different. Okay, uh, let me share another, another thing that I don't normally talk about. Um, as regards abortion, I am a Christian, so I believe nobody should take the life of somebody else because only God can. But I'm also a nurse, 
And if a mother comes to me, they have a problem, I will take part in performing an abortion. Um, back in 1993, I was pregnant eight months, three weeks, just one week to get a full-time baby. Something happened. I had an accident and the main artery in my uterus got severed, got cut into two. So I bled almost to death and the hospital that I needed to be taken to was two hours away. So my husband took me with an abhorrence, you know. This is all in Kenya. In Kenya. This is going on, okay. Yes. When I got to the hospital, I was in a coma. But when I woke up the next day, my husband and the doctor, I wasn't there, my husband and the doctor had decided to give up the baby to save me. Okay? So uh, when I see men talking about abortion and the way women should not abort, I, I think they don't even know what they are talking about. That's what I feel. Because there are instances like the one I've just described where the decision is not even made by you. And so when they say that no zero abortions, what they are saying is they are condemning a woman and the child to death. And that shouldn't happen. So uh, in some of those things, like um, to go back to your point, just because I am a woman, just that gives me some experience that a man. Well, and it, I'm sorry to hear that experience. Mm-hmm. And I know you, and I did not know that was part of your lived yeah. experience. That is so tragic. It, it was so tragic. And after that incident, I was told I can have more babies. So I have only one child. And I thank God for that one, you know. And thank God you are here and yes. healthy to do this work. Yeah. But again, another qualifying piece of a lived experience mm-hmm. that only you as a female can have. Yeah. You also went on to study more mm-hmm. about public health. Tell us about that degree. Okay. And how significant that could be to our future of recovering from a COVID pandemic that we've just had. Okay. Uh, before we come to the public health, I have a master's in emergency and disaster management. And the importance of that is that it gives me the skill to mitigate, to prevent, to plan, to respond, and to recover from an emergency or a disaster. I know how to do that. I look at, for instance, I look at the um, police building that we just built. It's beautiful. Have you been there? I have not. It's so beautiful. I will have to go visit. I mean, yeah, it's beautiful. We spent um, a lot of time there and I really loved it. So at the back of my head, I am thinking that what we need to do is we also have a small, very little department that is called emergency, um, emergency operation, something like that. It has, I think, two people two staff members, and that should be larger. 
than the way it is. And if possible, it needs to be housed in the police department so that we can stop misusing our police. When your grandmother runs away, that's not a police issue. When somebody is urinating in public, you don't call a police to stop that. When trash is overflowing, that's not for... You don't need to um, bring an armed police in the vehicles to that. That is misusing our police. So we need to create uh, an emergency operation center that can respond to non-violent problems, you know, and leave the police to respond to serious crimes, to, you know, mis serious misdemeanors, crimes, ongoing crimes, where we need them to be armed. If a man is fighting his wife, if that is probably, okay, I mean, if domestic violence, we know it's like a community mental problem issue, we can have the com a community program person respond to that. Because what happens when you send the police, they come armed, and those people are already agitated. If they too have a, have a gun, then you're going to have a shootout. So uh, we need uh, emergency. My emergency and disaster degree has taught me skills that I can use to help people respond to some of these things. And even disasters, major disasters, how, um, how I can look up like a giraffe, you know, giraffe, you know, I, mm -hmm. like, I like to use the animals. Yes. So the giraffe is very tall and it sees very far. It sees where the food is where the problems are coming from. And the other animals who cannot see that far, they are here. So if the giraffe starts running for any reason, these other, other animals run with it because they know that the giraffe has seen something that they can't see. So that is what um, this degree has done to me. It, it, it has enabled me to be able to climb a mountain from the top. I don't know whether. Yes. So I can climb a mountain from the top because I have that capability that I have got from that degree. Then the public health degree um, is, has also given me some very invaluable skills to take care of a whole community and a city like Beverly. Uh, because... All we need is to have people healthy, to keep people healthy. Once people are healthy, healthy people are happy people. And so you need those skills of a health public professional to make people healthy. For instance, take the, um, the pandemic that we are in. We have to make people understand. I'm hearing that, no, I cannot get vaccinated. I can wear a mask because I have rights. In a pandemic like this, the rights and the interests of the public supersede individual rights and interests. 
So you have to make people understand that at this time, individual rights have to be suppressed. Because we are operating under, uh, if you like, an unconditional command. A moral unconditional command that says, you will not endanger the life of others. And Esther, in a city setting, mm-hmm. it would be nice if a leader such as the mayor could rally the community around those ideals. Mm-hmm. And perhaps some level of mandate has a place. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a mask mandate in public when mm-hmm. you're going to be in large groups of people, perhaps going into stores where you're not going to know people. So having that public policy, that actual degree might help you Mm -hmm. to be able to communicate to people. Mm -hmm. I love the analogy used with the medicine. Mm -hmm. You you, you will often say, I'm going (laughs) to have to give the patient the medicine, but I'm going to give them a choice. Would you like the medicine now or in five minutes? She tells the story much better than I do. Yeah. But I think people will do things that they're asked to do if there's buy-in and if they understand why and if they start thinking about it in terms of a larger context. Yes. A greater good, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so um, the thing is, even, even though I say that the rights and the interests of the public supersede the rights and the interests of the individual, that does not mean that we don't respect the individual and their rights. And we have a duty to explain to them why we are asking them to do something. You have to tell them the rationale behind what you're asking them to do. You cannot hammer their head and tell them, go get vaccinated. You need to explain to them why it is important to get vaccinated. And if the worst comes to the worst, you even need to give them a choice. I have three tools. As a public health professional, I have three tools I can use. I have isolation, I have quarantine, and I have masks. Isolation, you do it when somebody is sick. You remove them from the community, you treat them, and then you release them back to the community. Quarantine, if you were exposed, if you went, if we came out of here now and... In two days, I discovered that I have COVID. The three of you have to quarantine until you know your status. And um, mask is least invasive. All you have to do is wear a mask. So when people refuse to wear a mask, you can call them and ask them, would you rather wear a mask or would you rather quarantine your house? Take your pick. You know, after... You have explained to them why they need to mask. But if you try humbling them, they won't, they, won't, they won't agree. So yesterday, I met a woman who is not vaccinated, and she doesn't believe in vaccination in one of the neighborhoods. And we got into a conversation. She said what she wanted to say. I told her what I wanted to say. And believe it or not, at the end of it, she understood why we need to mask and we exchanged information and said we are going to work together. So so it's people are not that bad so long as they know uh, why they are doing what you, 
you're asking asking them to do. So Esther, when people want to learn more about your platform, your thinking, and learn more about how you take all of what we talked about today and you make that into policy, where can they find that information? So I have um, written some articles on my website. I have uh, written about the overdevelopment that we are seeing in Beverly. I have written about um, the housing crisis and homelessness. I have talked about environmental resiliency and sustainability. And I, I, I think I have also talked about the vulnerable people because that's where we start. Everything you're doing, you've got to do it with the vulnerable people in mind. If it is COVID you want to arrest, you start with the vulnerable people. If you want to make, uh, to build walkability infrastructure, you start with the vulnerable people. Anything you do, if you do it that way, you end up covering everybody. But if you start for people who don't need it, then um, some people are going to slip through the cracks. I love that. So I love that you have those places right on the website where Mm -hmm. people can go to the policy or the problem that might be of interest to them to go deeper Mm -hmm. and read that. Yes. And they can also reach out to my campaign. I have had so many questions asked through the campaign. Um, The email, info at estherforbeverly.com. And then she will hone in on your specific question. Yes. Now, because this is a fashion style dressing (laughs) podcast, we have to talk a little bit about that and then we'll close. Okay. So this is the fun part. This is the lighter part. Mm -hmm. What is the uh, traditional outfit that you're wearing? And she has the most beautiful ones. Is it called something? Does it have a name? African countries have traditional dresses. Um, this is supposed to be called kitenge. Okay, I love it. But kitenge, the African kitenge is very colorful. It has red, green, orange, all those colors in it. And then we normally make like frills, you know, like mm-hmm. on the arms and then... Uh, around the waist, we make it pleated uh, because an African woman is supposed to look a certain way. You know, we were very uh, careful about roles, you know, Af- uh, the women. If, you, if you've been following me because I'm an older African woman, I do most of those things that I was brought up believing in. Like I would never be able to wear like a miniskirt it cannot happen <laughs> because I, so she calls herself an older woman, but she's like my age. So, and I don't call myself an older woman yet. So she's only in her fifties. Let me paint this picture. And the dress that she's wearing would be like an American would call it a caftan. Okay. But it's so much better than a caftan. Okay. So, so um, growing up, I wasn't allowed to show my this part of the arm. Oh, the upper arm was not to the, be seen. So we didn't wear... Like, like a sleeveless. Yeah. Okay. I do wear that, but I am very conscious when I have it. 
you're in the garden when you're wearing that. Or even in the house. Okay. Or in summer, I will wear that, but I'm conscious. I know you'll probably see me with something that I'm throwing over it. And I grew up, my father again, I loved my father and he loved me too. After he came from the forest, he found that Christianity had been established in Kenya. So the the colonialists are the ones who brought Christianity. They are bringing Christianity, the Bible, and it's followed by the gun, right? My father did not agree to that. So he turned to an African religious uh, group that behaves like the Jews, the Israelites. Interesting. Yeah. So they um, they believe in the Old Testament, although they still follow the New Testament. They cover their head. They have hair like I told you. Mm-hmm. They wear long clothes. They don't expose. So my father was a pastor of that r- traditional religion. It's called Akorino. The, my father wore a turban. My mother wore a turban. So as much as um, I don't belong to that religion, I really value it because that's who... Who raised you. Who raised me. And in fact, there are times in my head I have thought of becoming an Akorino. You know, like doing the same, joining the religion and doing the same things that my parents did. And now that my mother is 90, very old, maybe if she died, maybe I'd become an Akorino. You know, I don't know, but I, I would do something to honor her and the way honor that her. you honored your dad. Yes. So that is why I'm mostly dressed in things that people might not understand. And, um, and when you're out on the campaign trail and they see you coming in what I think they understand as garb from from Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they ever ask you about it? Are they interested in it? How does it, because it is so not American. It is yes. so different. Yes. I have had some people, I have had one person tell me that I need to change my wardrobe to something that people can understand. And I said, okay, let me think about it. I thought about it and I'm like, no, this is one area of my life that I'm never going to change. You take me as I am. I am. Well, it makes you very unique. Again, <laughs> you stand out. It's It shows that you have depth. There's something else. There's a whole other story. I think it allows people to be curious and okay. inquisitive. Uh-huh. The dresses are beautiful. She had a black and white one on last week. I was like, I need, I need you to sell those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to fund your campaign because oh many, many women will buy that. Oh, yeah? That beautiful, beautiful caftan, yes. Okay, uh, let me say something that um, you just started in my I life. Got, I got yeah. her thinking. Yeah, uh, last, it's not last week, last Wednesday, uh, one of the students in, in the high school decided to interview me, to ask me, why I'm running, whether I had political um, affinity when growing up and all those questions. And she at the end asked me, how can we young people get involved in politics? 
and I really didn't know what to tell her. But I had my door, um, um, I had my palm cards mm-hmm. saying that I was born in Kenya. So I said, okay, here's the deal. Take all this, give all the students in this school and tell them to take them to their parents. What I was hoping would happen is this. When a student comes home with this thing and puts it on the table, then um, somebody will say, mom, did you know there was a black woman running? And then that is going to spark her uh, conversation. And I hope it does. So then um, the, the, the parents and the children will, you know, will converse and then probably agree on something. I think if nothing else happens mm-hmm. this November, the conversation in Beverly has mm-hmm. been changed. I think it's been elevated. I think there's been an element of global awareness that you've brought. And I mean, for that, I am excited and grateful. Thank you. Esther, are there any other places you want people to go to engage before November 2nd? What's your call to action to people who will listen to this? On Tuesday, there's a debate between me and Mayor Cahill. It's going to be at the cupboard. I am really scared, but guess what? I'm going to do it. It's October 26th at 7 p.m. at night. You know, I I love that you own that emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's another, again, female thing. I don't think a man on any media would say that they're scared (laughs) or that they have trepidation. So kudos to you, Esther, for saying it, owning it, and knowing that you're going to go in and experience that emotion and many others. I'm going to go in and face it head on. My giraffe. (laughs) Thank you, Esther, for letting me interview you. I'm just so excited about having more female leadership. There's um, a number of organizations that are sprouting up in Mm -hmm. the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, like She Should Run. Um, There's a female woman's caucus in Massachusetts for people running for um, any kind of public office. So I think women who are listening, young, old, middle-aged, all over the map, please think about running for something, anything. When I decided to run, I check. The last time a woman ran in Beverly is probably 40 years ago. 40? Mm Mm-hmm. And she ran for mayor. Yeah, but she, she didn't win, but it was, I don't know whether that scared women or what happened. That is so interesting. I'm going to have to do a little history on that. (laughs) But I think women today, um, there's so many more opportunities. Yes. um, And they should avail themselves of those opportunities. We also have a mayoral race in Boston proper with two women running. And this will be the first time Mm -hmm. in the history of Boston we will have a female mayor. Yes. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, And we'll see which one. uh, And they are both people of color. So it's really exciting times for women. It is exciting. Thank you so much, Esther. Thank you. Hello, I am the Reverend Dr. Andre Bennett. I serve as the campaign manager for Dr. Esther Godo for mayor for Beverly. 
Please, please, please take a moment to visit our website to learn more about the candidate and her platform. Our website is www.estherforbeverly.com. Again, it's estherforbeverly.com. You can send us an email with any questions that you may have to info at estherforbeverly.com. Info at estherforbeverly.com and we will get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you and please support, donate, donate, donate. When you go to our website, hit the Act Blue button and donate. We need money to ensure that this candidate does not get lost in the whatever of it, but that her platform is highlighted, her voice is amplified, and that this election comes what may starts and continues a different conversation in Beverly. Email address is info at estherforbeverly.com. Thank you. To find out more about Lisa's sustainable style, check out lasswardrobe.com.